So, I am beginning a new sermon series today called Strength and Weakness. It's going to be a journey through the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians, the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Um, And as we begin this new year of sermons, I just want to remind you, first and foremost, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. Paul writes, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay, this is what we believe. We believe that the whole Bible is God-breathed, that it is written down by men, uh, but it is inspired by God, that it is the very word of God, and that even though there's 66 books of the Bible written in various times, various places by various people, uh, it all tells one grand story, one grand meta-narrative of God's salvation that he has brought to a fallen world. And so uh, I want to encourage you as we turn to 2 Corinthians to, re- to re- remember that this is the word of God and to see it that way and to hear it that way. Excuse me. Um, and I also just want to mention, you know, as when we read through 2 Corinthians or any letter, remember that these were not dropped out of the sky to 21st century America. Okay, this is not a letter to you. This was a letter written by a man, Paul, to a church in Corinth that he had started around the year 50 AD. Okay, and so as we read, it's going to be important to keep that in mind and keep that in context because there's going to be some things you read that are transcultural, meaning that they apply to all people in all situations, in all times, in all places. And then there's going to be some things you might read that are more cultural, cultural specific to that particular church. And so every time you read through the Bible, particularly those letters, you need to keep that in mind and be able to consult Bible dictionaries and commentaries, concordances, things like that, in order to understand. And so we're going to begin with the first two verses of 2 Corinthians 1. I'm going to do the first 11 verses this morning, but right now let me just read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, Paul's introduction. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, And Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all the saints throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're unfamiliar with these people, Paul and Timothy and the church in Corinth, Paul was a Pharisee, which meant he was one of the Jewish religious leaders, and he was bent on persecuting Christians because he believed that they were heretics until Jesus, the risen Jesus, who had ascended to heaven, appeared to him on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Turned his life around, and Saul, who then adopted the Greek name Paul, uh, became this fervent, passionate follower of Jesus, planting churches and bringing the gospel wherever he went. And that's him. And he brought along with him in this letter, it says, Timothy, who was one of his protégés, best known as a pastor in the church of Ephesus. So Paul and Timothy write this letter to the church in Corinth. And Corinth, if you're unfamiliar with where Corinth is, it's part of uh, Greece, ancient Greece, also part of the Roman Empire in those days. Uh, it was this land bridge between Peloponnesus and Manly, Manly, mainland Greece. And so it was a great position, a lot of traders, a lot of people coming and going. Uh, it was a very wealthy city. And Paul had started a church there around the year 50 A.D., and last year, we went through 1 Corinthians uh, around this time. And so if you didn't read that, you can go back on our website, listen to those sermons. Uh, and this is another letter that he wrote to the church. He always writes these letters, it seems, because there's issues arising that he needs to address. And this is no different. It seems like what seems to be happening that he's going to be addressing 
is that there's some religious teachers who have come and they're discrediting Paul. They're throwing shade on his ministry, uh, basically telling everyone that, that Paul is not much of a, a teacher and that they should be instead following them. And Paul is writing to address some of these issues that have arisen. Now, one of the reasons that this, this matters, one of the reasons this comes up, is that Paul is suffering a lot. If you're, if you're familiar with his ministry at all, you know that he went through all kinds of suffering. And remember that Corinth was a very wealthy city. And so these other apostles, these other, other super apostles, as Paul calls them, calls them, are coming in and saying, look at Paul, look at his life, look how much he's suffering. You really think that he's blessed by God? Look at us. We don't suffer. We're rich, we're wealthy, we're all of these things. And so they're starting to doubt the authenticity of Paul's ministry. Remember that God had told Paul up front that he was going to suffer a lot. This is in the beginning when he was just converted. The Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man, Paul, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles, that's the non-Jewish people, and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So they are doubting Paul's authenticity because of all the suffering he's gone through. They're saying, well, if someone's following God, shouldn't they be experiencing health and wealth and all kinds of great blessings? And here's this Paul who's suffering Maybe he's not really a man of God. So as a result, when we go through 2 Corinthians, you're going to find that it talks about suffering a lot and the relationship of the suffering of suffering to the Christian. So let me continue. Let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. And then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. This is God's word. Let me pray before we continue. Lord, help us to understand what this meant in Corinth, what it meant in Paul's day, and what it means for us today. We want to know you more. We want to understand what it means to know you and follow you. And so we pray, God, that you would reveal yourself to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul begins his letter with a general benediction about the God of all comfort and compassion who comforts us when we're suffering so that then we can comfort others with the comfort we have received from God. And then after that, he gets personal and he starts talking about a specific situation. He doesn't get into all the details, but he talks about a specific situation that he and his ministry team went through where it was so bad that they were despairing even of life. 
says they felt the sentence of death upon them. They didn't even think they would survive. It was far beyond their ability to endure, he says. But God, as they turned to him to depend on him and reliance on him, he delivered them. There's two key words, as you can tell, in this passage. The first is suffering, and the second is comfort. He talks about how the sufferings of Christ overflow into their lives, and then how the comfort of Christ overflows into their lives and through them to others. The suffering, again, as I mentioned in the beginning, it's important because there are these people who Paul calls later in the letter the super apostles. He's, he's saying this in, in joking fashion, sarcastically, that there's these super apostles who have come in who are much more impressive than Paul. They're probably wealthy, they're better looking than Paul probably, and they're going, they're, their lives just seem like they've got it all together. And they're convincing the Corinthians that, hey, you follow God, it's going to be health and wealth and all of this stuff. And they're throwing shade on Paul's ministry. But Paul says, no, if we're following Jesus who suffered and died for us, it's going to involve suffering. It's going to involve hardship. It's going to involve spiritual warfare. It's going to involve laying down and sacrificing our lives for others as he laid down and sacrificed his life for us. So can I just encourage and tell you that if anyone tries to teach you a version of Christianity that is all about health and wealth, that if you follow God, then everything is going to be, you know, great and healthy and wealthy and all of that, they're lying to you. It's not in line with the life of Jesus or teaching of Jesus. It's not in line with the life and teaching of Paul. It's not in line with the rest of the Bible, okay? Just like Corinth was a wealthy city and so they were drawn to messages of health and wealth, in many ways, America is a wealthy country and Christians and people in general are drawn to messages of health and wealth. They want a God who promises them health and wealth and blessing upon blessing. That's what their itching ears want to hear and they will gather around themselves teachers who teach those things. Do not be fooled by that. Do not be fooled. That is not the message of the Bible. It's not the message of the gospel. This world is not a country club. It's a battle. It's a, it's a war zone. It's not going to be, you know, health and wealth and everything easy. The second key word that comes up here is, is not just suffering, but comfort. Comfort. It's the Greek word paraklesis. Maybe you've heard that before. And I think it's important just to get into the definition of this one because I think when I hear the word comfort, I think of someone saying like, they're there. You know, it's going to be okay. And comforting someone in their suffering. But that's not the full range of what comfort means biblically. Let me read what David Garland writes in his commentary on 2 Corinthians. Comfort is not a tranquilizing dose of grace to dull the pain, but a stiffening agent that fortifies one in heart, mind, and soul. God's comfort strengthens weakness and sustains sagging spirits so that one can face the troubles of life with unbending resolve and unending assurance. God may not always remove the afflictions that come our way, but God always comforts by giving the fortitude to face them. Does that make sense? So instead of seeing comfort as like God saying, oh, it's going to be okay, see it as encouragement and strength, that that's what God's comfort is. Encourage and strengthen you to face whatever trials come your way because there is not a promise that he's always going to remove the hardships and remove the trials, but he does promise to give you encouragement and strength to face the trials with supernatural power. And that's what Paul wants to communicate to them. 
that he is the God of all compassion and comfort, that he will strengthen and encourage you for whatever trial comes your way. And this morning, I want to do the same for you. Okay? My prayer is that God, through his word and through my words, will encourage and strengthen you for whatever trials you are currently enduring and for whatever trials might come your way. So he brings us his comfort, Paul says, through the sufferings of Christ that overflow into our lives. And I want to just talk about the gospel and, and how the sufferings of Christ in particular bring us comfort in times of trial. And there's four ways in particular I want to highlight. The first is this, that you are not alone. The gospel message of Jesus Christ's death for our sins. The first way that that brings us comfort in trials is that we know that we are not alone. Do you understand that? Whatever it is you are going through, whatever it is you might go through, you are not alone. You are not going through it alone. This life is so hard in so many ways as you face loss, as you face the trials and temptations. But God has not left you alone. But he came and he suffered alongside us. He did not stay up in heaven letting us suffer, but he came down taking bodily form in the person of Jesus. Not just sending us a map or a manual on how to handle suffering, but coming down and walking through this world, entering into our suffering. Think about this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53 about the Messiah, Jesus. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. How's that for a portrayal of Jesus in his life? You know, if you believe the Hollywood portrayals of Jesus, you might think Jesus is some Vidal Sassoon model gliding through life, right? Untouched by the dirt and mud, you know, not getting any dirt on his robe. But Isaiah's passage points, it paints such a different picture, doesn't it? despised, rejected, one from whom men hide their faces, nothing in his appearance to attract us to him, rejected, punished, suffering. That's Jesus coming down and suffering alongside us. And because he suffered, we know we're not alone, that we have a God we can turn to and no matter what suffering we're experiencing. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 to 16 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Amen? Because you're not alone. Whatever trial you go through, we know because of the gospel that you were not alone, that Jesus suffered, and that now he overcame and he is at the right hand of the Father, and so we can go to him and find help in our time of need. 
as Jesus said in John 16, 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Not that you're just going to have health and wealth and everything easy. You're going to have trouble in this world, but take heart, I have overcome the world, Jesus says. He is the great high priest who you can turn to in your time of need. So again, listen to what Paul said. He said, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life. Can you see that? If you have ever felt that way, ever felt like life was so hard that you just wanted to die and you didn't know how you could ever go on, this is Paul saying the same thing. That the pressure was so great that he despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. He thought he was done. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He was not alone. And as he turned in dependence to God, it says, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. Can I encourage you that no matter what you go through, no matter what you may go through, you are not alone. That you have one who has been tempted and tried in every way, yet was without sin. And now he stands at the right hand of the Father and you can turn to him in any time to receive help in your time of need. Second thing, the second way that the sufferings of Christ overflow into our lives to bring us comfort is that we know that we are loved. You know, many people when they're suffering, what do they ask? Why, God? Why would you allow this to happen? If you love me, why would you allow this to happen? And in the end, this side of heaven, we don't usually get the answer, do we? We don't usually get the specific answer. Well, I'm allowing you to go through this because this, this, and this is going to happen as a result. We don't get the answer. We just trust. But we do know that the answer is not that he doesn't love us. Whatever the reason is he allows us to suffer, it's not because he doesn't love us. And we know that to be true because of the cross, because of the gospel. Because when we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 6 through 8, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says, this is how we know that God loves us. We look at the cross. We look at the cross. And we see there Jesus dying for us when we were God's enemies, when we were the ungodly, when we were not right with God. Do you understand that that's when he died for you? Not when you were at your best, not when you were in church, not when you were praying, not when you were helping the poor. He died for you when you were at your worst. Think about the worst things you've ever done. That is when Christ died for you. So whatever the reason is that we're suffering, we know it's not that he doesn't love us. Because when we were his enemies, he died for us. That's how we know he loves us. And so the comfort of God comes into our lives when we're suffering because no matter what it is we're going through, we know, first of all, we're not alone. And secondly, we know that we're loved. So whatever the reason is, we know that he has a reason. The reason is not that he doesn't love us, that he's forgotten about us. There is a reason. 
third thing that is very similar to the second and builds off of that is this. Christ's sufferings bring us comfort because we know that our suffering is not the end of the story. Think about it again. What suffering have you gone through or are you currently going through? What trial are you facing? How do you find strength and encouragement, comfort in those trials? First of all, you know that you're not alone. Jesus Christ came and suffered alongside you. He came down and went through it worse than you've ever gone through. And you are not alone in whatever it is you're going through. Secondly, that you are loved. Whatever the reason is that you are going through this, it's not that God does not love you. And then thirdly, whatever it is you're going through, it is not the end of the story. It is not the end of the story. Even when it feels like it did for Paul, like it's just crushing, feel like the sentence of death is upon you. It is not the end of the story. Again, look at the cross. Think about Jesus hanging up there on the cross and his followers either in hiding or there at the cross. God never seemed more absent. God never seemed more unloving than he did on that day, right? After all, what loving father would allow his innocent son to suffer unjustly like that? and not rescue him, and not come to his aid. What kind of loving father? If there was a God, certainly he would come to the aid of his son and rescue him and deliver him and bring justice to those who had crucified him. God never seemed more absent, more unloving than he did on that day. But now we look back and we know that God was never more present and God was never more loving than he was on that day, right? God himself, the son of God, was there on that cross dying for the sins of the world. And he loved us so much that he was willingly giving his life to pay the penalty for our sins, to take the punishment we deserve, to make us right with him, to give us eternal life. God was never more present and never more loving than he was on that day. What does that teach you? How does that encourage you? How does that strengthen you in your trials? It encourages me because I know that even when I can't see God, even when I don't understand what he's up to, even when I feel like he's absent, when I don't understand how a loving God could allow this to happen, I can look to the cross. And I can remind myself that at the cross, God never seemed more absent and loving than he did on that day, but God was never more present and never more loving than he was on that day as he allowed his son to die. Can I encourage you? Take that to heart. Let that encourage and strengthen you. That no matter what it is you are going through, it is not the end of the story. If it feels to you like God is absent, like God is unloving, that he's allowed something to happen that is terrible, it is not the end of the story. Just like it was not the end of the story on that day when Jesus hung on the cross. Amen? It was not the end of the story. God loves you. God is with you. And it is not the end of the story. He is still at work, even when you don't see what he is up to. Romans 8, 28 to 29 says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
if you would trust him in whatever suffering you are going through, whatever trial you're facing, if you would trust him, then you will find that God is at work. And whatever he allows you to go through, he is at work to purify you, to make you more like his son, Jesus, to make you into a person of love and joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's not the end of the story. Whatever is going on, it's not the end of the story. God is very much at work for good. And one day, he will put a final end to evil and suffering. Amen? Again, he will put a final end. It's not the end of the story for you or for this world. One day, he will put a final end to evil and suffering. Remember Revelation 21, 3 through 4. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So again, Paul is telling them, praise be to the God of all compassion and comfort who comforts us in our suffering. How does he comfort you in your suffering? How does he encourage and strengthen you in your suffering? As you look at the cross, as you look at the gospel, you know, first of all, that you are never alone, that you have a God who has walked the road ahead of you, has suffered what you are suffering. You have a God who loves you, that even if you don't understand why he would allow what he's allowing, you know the reason is not that he doesn't love you, because he's proved that on the cross. And thirdly, you know it's not the end of the story, and he can strengthen you and encourage you to endure and persevere because you know it's not the end of the story. You know that he's always working things together for good. And you know that one day he'll put a final end to all suffering and evil. The last thing is this. How do Christ's sufferings bring us comfort? Because we know that our suffering will equip us to minister comfort to others. That whatever it is we go through, that God can use that when we trust in him to equip us to minister comfort to others. Look again at what Paul said. He says, if we are distressed, that highlighted area there, if we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. Your suffering is not meaningless. Whatever it is you're going through, it is not meaningless. First of all, as he said, it allowed Paul, he says, to trust in God, to rely upon him to not depend upon himself. But secondly, he says, it equipped him to minister to the Corinthians in a way that he couldn't have if he had not gone through that suffering, if life was always easy. And I want to encourage you this morning that whatever suffering you have gone through or will go through, if you would trust God, he can use that to equip you to minister comfort, encouragement, and strength to others. Think about Paul in Philippians chapter 1. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. You hear what Paul is saying there? He's saying, 
life is so hard. He suffered so much in his life. He's like, I would rather die and be with Christ. That's better by far, to be done with this world, to be done with the suffering and evil of this world, and to be with God forever. I would rather that happen. But as long as I'm here, I'm going to allow him to use that suffering so that I might minister to you, he says to the Philippian church, to bring you encouragement and strength and comfort. As long as I'm here, it's going to be fruitful labor for me. I'm going to keep working, keep serving, keep loving. Your suffering is not meaningless. And one of the reasons it's not meaningless is that if you trust in God, he will use whatever it is you have gone through, whatever it is you are experiencing to equip you to minister to others in a way that you couldn't if you just lived the easy life of health and wealth. Nowhere has, been this been, nowhere has this been put more beautifully than by Charles Spurgeon, 19th century London preacher in his book, The Soul Winner. I try to bring this quote out once a year because it's one of my favorites. It says this, Some years ago, I was the subject of fearful depression of spirit. Certain troublous events had happened to me. I was also unwell and my heart sank within me. Out of the depths, I was forced to cry unto the Lord. Just before I went away to Mentone for rest, I suffered greatly in body, but far more in soul, for my spirit was overwhelmed. Under this pressure, I preached a sermon from the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I was as much qualified to preach from that text as ever I expect to be. Indeed, I hope that few of my brethren could have entered so deeply into those heartbreaking words. I felt to the full of my measure the horror of a soul forsaken by God. Now, that was not a desirable experience. I tremble at the bare idea of passing again through that eclipse of soul. I pray that I may never suffer in that fashion again unless the same result should hang upon it. That night after the sermon, there came into the vestry a man who was as nearly insane as he could be to be out of an asylum. His eyes seemed ready to start from his head, and he said that he should utterly have despaired if he had not heard that discourse, which had made him feel that there was one man alive who understood his feelings and could describe his experience. I talked with him, and I tried to encourage him, and I asked him to come again on the Monday night when I should have a little more time to talk with him. I saw the brother again, and I told him that I thought he was a hopeful patient, and I was glad that the word had been so suited to his case. Apparently, he put aside the comfort which I presented for his acceptance, and yet I had the consciousness upon me that the precious truth which he, which he had heard was at work upon his mind, and that the storm of his soul would soon subside into a deep calm. And now hear the sequel. Last night, of all the times in the year when, strange to say, I was preaching from the words, The Almighty hath vexed my soul, after the service in walked this selfsame brother who had called on me five years before. This time he looked as different as noonday from midnight or as life from death. I said to him, I am glad to see you, for I have often thought about you and wondered whether you were brought into perfect peace. I told you that I went to Mentone, and my patient also went into the country so that we had not met for five years. To my inquiries, to my inquiries, the brother replied, Yes, you said I was a hopeful patient, and I am sure you'll be glad to know that I have walked in the sunlight from that day till now. Everything has changed and altered with me. Dear friends, as soon as I saw my poor despairing patient the first time, I blessed God that my fearful experience had prepared me to sympathize with him and guide him. But last night, when I saw him perfectly restored, my heart overflowed with gratitude to God from my former sorrowful feelings. 
I would go into the deeps a hundred times to cheer a downcast spirit. It is good for me to have been afflicted that I might know how to speak a word in season to one that is weary. Suppose that by some painful operation you could have your right arm made a little longer. I do not suppose you would care to undergo the operation, but if you foresaw that by undergoing the pain you would be enabled to reach and save drowning men who else would sink before your eyes, I think you would willingly bear the agony and pay a heavy fee to the surgeon to be thus qualified for the rescue of your fellows. Reckon then to acquire soul-winning power you will have to go through fire and water, through doubt and despair, through mental torment and soul distress. It will not, of course, be the same with you all, nor perhaps with any two of you, but according to the work allotted you will be your preparation. You must go into the fire if you are to pull others out of it, and you will have to dive into the floods if you are to draw others out of the water. You cannot work a fire escape without feeling the scorch of the conflagration, nor man a lifeboat without being covered with the waves. If Joseph is to preserve his brothers alive, he must himself go down into Egypt. If Moses is to lead the people through the wilderness, he must first spend 40 years there with the flock. Payson truly said, if anyone asks to be made a successful minister, he knows not what he asks, and it becomes him to consider whether he can drink deeply of Christ's bitter cup and be baptized with his baptism. Amen to that. Again, I tell you that there are teachers out there today, just as there were in Corinth, who are trying to convince you that if you follow God, it's going to be health, wealth, and blessing from here on out. I mean, it's New Year's, and so this is the time of year when you have all kinds of false prophets out there talking about increase and breakthrough, and promotion, and all those words that get us saying, yes, right? That's what I want. Positive, 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 positive. But that's just not the gospel, and that's just not the words of Jesus. That's not the words of Paul. This is the truth, that this world is a battle, that God has called you to enter in to the ministry of reconciliation, to bring others back to him. And that is going to mean suffering. As he said, you can't man a fire escape without feeling the heat of the flames and you can't man a lifeboat without having the waves crashing over you. And if God has allowed you to go through suffering in times of trial, it is not meaningless. If you would trust in him and submit your suffering to him, then he will use that to equip you to minister to others in a way that you could not if life was all health and wealth. And I have plenty of personal experiences to back that up. I'm not going to get into them all right now. It's a lot of private stuff. But I have been through it, and I have been through enough suffering, as he says, far beyond my ability to endure where I despaired and needed to cry out to God for help. And he did deliver. And he did use those situations to equip me and prepare me that I might minister to people in a way that I couldn't have if I had just had the easy life, if everything had just been increase and breakthrough and promotion. It's the suffering that has equipped me to minister to others. And it's the suffering that will equip you to minister to others as well if you would trust in him. 
I am sorry for the things that you have suffered in your life. For those of you who have gone through abuse, relational breakdown, mental health struggles, losses of loved ones. So many of you have gone through such terrible, terrible things that have caused you such pain and probably caused you to question God and question his love for you. But I want to encourage you this morning and strengthen you, I hope, to trust in God that no matter what it is you have gone through, if you would submit it to God and say, it's all yours, my brokenness is yours, my pain is yours, my suffering is yours, that he can use that to equip you to minister to others in a way that others could not, those others who have not gone through that could not minister to them. Consider this quote from Brennan Manning about a play by Thornton Wilder. He says, there's a scene in Thornton Wilder's play, The Angel That Troubled the Waters. The scene is a doctor comes to the pool every day wanting to be healed of his melancholy and his gloom and his sadness. Finally, the angel appears. The doctor, he's a medical doctor, goes to step into the water. And the angel blocks his entrance and says, no, step back. This healing is not for you. The doctor pleads, but I've got to get into the water. I can't live this way. The angel says, no, this moment is not for you. And he says, but how can I live this way? The angel says to him, doctor, without your wounds, where would your power be? It is your melancholy that makes your low voice tremble into the hearts of men and women. The very angels themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children of this earth as can one human being broken on the wheels of living. In love's service, only wounded soldiers serve. How's that? In love's service, only wounded soldiers serve. There is a weight, there is a substance, a gravity that comes with your suffering. That when you speak to others, you're not speaking head knowledge, right? You're speaking from heart, life, experience. That you have been through it and you can bring comfort, encouragement, and strength to someone because of what you've gone through. In love service, only wounded soldiers serve. So are you willing to believe this this morning? Are you willing to trust God with your suffering and your pain? That it's not because he doesn't love you. That he is very much with you. His loving presence is with you. He has proved on the cross that he loves you. And he has proved that it's not the end of the story. That even when he seems absent and unloving, we look at the cross and we know that he is always present and loving. He is always at work for good for those who love him. And part of that good is to equip you to minister to others. So are you willing this morning to trust him, to give him your pain and your brokenness and your suffering, that he might use you to minister to others? If you are, pray this with me. Let's pray. God, I trust you with my pain. I believe that you are teaching me to rely on you and not on myself. And so right now, I throw myself into your loving hands. Strengthen me by your supernatural power so that I might endure the trials I am currently facing as well as the ones that will come my way. And Lord, I am willing to be used by you to bring comfort, strength, and encouragement to others. 
May I be a conduit of your comfort to others, that many might be saved and strengthened, and so that you might be glorified. Amen. Let's respond in worship.